Hello, welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. In today's episode, we're going to go along with a theme on talking about both classic articles and classifications, and we're going to talk about the Crow classification. So this was first published in 1979 in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. The article was titled, Total Hip Replacement in Congenital Dislocation and Dysplasia of the Hip. And this was written by Dr. John Crow, along with Dr. Chit Ranawat at Hospital for Special Surgery. So this is a classification that we all commonly use. I'm going to go through briefly what they found. This was a case report. They had um, 31 total hips in 24 patients. 10 of these patients had bilateral. These were patients that either had severe dysplasia or dislocations. Average age, 57. And as expected, the majority of them were female, 22 with only two males. They had an average follow-up at four years. And 11 patients had excellent results, 16 good, one fair, one poor. Six patients had an additional superior lateral graft performed, and the major complication rate was 19%. These included things like myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolus, dislocation, subluxation, femur fracture, and a sciatic nerve palsy. Of the patients that they operated on, they had five that had previous surgeries, such as open reduction um, with or without a shelf procedure. Three had an osteotomy of the femur, and four patients had more than one procedure. Now, when we talk about the classification, let's talk about radiographic things. So one of the most important lines that you're going to have to draw when you do a lot of these measurements, when we talk about most things in the hip and specifically looking at the amount of dysplasia is your inter-teardrop line. So this is a horizontal line drawn across the pelvis at the bottom of both teardrops. Now, the other thing that they looked at was also this um, height. So they looked at the uh, height measurement, and they measured the height of the pelvis from the highest point on the iliac crest down to the inferior margin of the ischial tuberosity, so along that line. And they found that the normal ratio of vertical diameter of the femoral head to the height of the pelvis was approximately 1 to 5. Now, that's something that we don't commonly um, look at. We also commonly look though I think a lot of you are more familiar with the center edge angle. So this is, again, um, drawing your inter-teardrop line and drawing a vertical line through the center of the head perpendicular to that inter-teardrop line, and then a line from the center of the head to the lateral edge of the acetabulum, and that angle is the center edge angle of Weiberg. They didn't use this, so they didn't find that this was as useful or as accurate in these severe dysplastics um, because they were so severely dysplastic that they couldn't really identify when the head was dislocated. It didn't really give them a good number. Um, So they did use Sharp's method. So Sharp's method is an angle between the two inter-teardrop lines. Um, So again, that line that you draw across in the horizontal. And then another line which connects the inferior teardrop to the superior lateral aspect of the acetabulum and that angle between those lines is Sharp's angle. But what they also came up with was what we now refer to as the Crow classification. So they found that they could easily locate, even in this most severe dysplasia, the junction between the head and the neck medially. And then again, if we draw that inter-teardrop um, line horizontally, what they were looking at was the distance between the line and the head-neck junction. So they grouped this into four groups. So group one, they found these patients had less than 50% of subluxation. And they found that group two had 50 to 75% subluxation. Group three had 75 to 100% subluxation. 
And group four had 100% subluxation. So in their group back then, you know, seven of these they found were grade two, 10 were grade three, 14 were grade four. But this becomes the classification that you get asked about a lot. So just knowing that that group one, two, three, four is based on the amount of subluxation of the femoral head in relation um, to that acetabulum, drawing their inter-teardrop line, knowing the height of the pelvis, and knowing where that junction is between the head and the medial aspect of the neck. Now, the other things that they talked about, and, and these, I think, are important take-home points whenever you're operating on somebody with dysplasia, is that the acetabulum, especially in these more severe dysplastics, is dysplastic. It is shallow, and it can very commonly be superior, and they have that pseudoacetabulum. So when you're doing surgery, the most important thing is identifying the actual location of the true acetabulum. Um, and they talk about this, that you have to really identify it. Back then, they were looking for fixation of getting 75% coverage, and if they didn't have that, that's the patients in which they use the bone graft. And they also noted that the size of these cups were extremely small. They were talking about 33 to 44 millimeters. And that's the thing that you will experience is that these patients that are dysplastic have extremely, extremely small acetabulum. So you have to have those available and be prepared for it. The other thing which they noted and mentioned is that these femurs typically have a lot of aniversion in the neck. There's posterior migration of the greater trochanter and a very small canal. So we have a lot more options nowadays when it comes to implants, but back then they didn't have as many options. So they needed you know, smaller diameters um, and very, very straight stems as opposed to the more standard large and sort of curved stems that they had back then. Um, now, important take-home points for you today, if you're treating someone with dysplasia, is that depending on the, the amount of dysplasia and what the acetabulum is like, and because more patients are being screened at a young age and being treated, you may not see these, you know, crow three, crow four dysplastic hips, but you're still going to see some amount of dysplasia. So the tenets still hold the same. Identify the actual acetabulum. And if you're not sure where you are, keep looking, keep going, keep going. Really identify the TAL. And once you identify the TAL, you have a better idea of where the acetabulum is. It can be very difficult and confusing because if these patients have been dysplastic and out for a while, the inferior aspect of the capsule can be very thick and redundant, and you can easily be fooled at thinking something is the TAL when it's not. So keep debriding, keep debriding, keep debriding, find the TAL. The next thing is really identifying the center of the acetabulum in relation to the pelvis because these are ones where you do not have a lot of wiggle room. This is not a 60 millimeter cup where you can move the reamer around if you have to make adjustments. These are typically ones where you get only a few reams and you're hopefully gonna get coverage. You may have to medialize more than you typically would to get coverage, but if you mess up the first reamer or two in your anterior or posterior, you can very easily ream out the anterior wall or posterior wall. One of the other little tricks, which is very, very helpful, even in the best of hands, we can be fooled, is that once you've debrided and identified and you put the first reamer in, you may do a little dusting to seat it, leave the actual reamer or the grater in the cup, You know, take the handle off and take an x-ray and really confirm and make sure that you are where you think you are as far as identifying the actual acetabulum and putting the cup in the appropriate position. 
Same thing on the femoral side. Again, the femur is different. So depending on you know your skill level and your technique and what implants, you may want to have things. Very commonly, people used to use SROM. Some people use modular components. There's some Bogner-style stems, which allow you to really rotate and create the antiversion where you, where you want to put it. And some people even, depending on the anatomy, you may have some smaller cemented stems in certain individuals, which will allow you to adjust the version as opposed to being fixed based on the femoral anatomy and the actual neck is trying to retrovert it more than their natural antiversion, which can lead to difficulties with stability and balancing. So a whole lot of tips and tricks on when you deal with dysplastics, but also important to just know that Crow classification first described in 1979. We talk about groups one, two, three, four, based on the degree of subluxation. Less than 50% of subluxation is a grade one or group one, group two, 50 to 75% subluxation, group three, 75 to 100% subluxation, and group four is greater than 100% subluxation. And go back and review Sharp's angles and your center edge angle, just so you have those and understand what they are and how to measure them. And again, be very cognizant of looking at your AP pelvis, identifying your teardrops, drawing your inter-teardrop line, because that horizontal line is going to be the basis for all of these measurements that you're going to do. Until next time, keep reading, stay safe. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.